I think that that's one of the most important or, or, or significant traits that you can have as a runner, an athlete, a human, a colleague, a dad, a husband, is to be dependable, if nothing else. Like, I know I can depend on myself. When I wake up at a, on a race day and I'm like, man, I really don't want to do this. The weather stinks. I don't feel like I've done enough. There's like two voices in my head, that alpha and beta. And the beta is like, go back to bed, dude. This is crazy. No one gives a crap about this. You're the only one that cares. And then the alpha is like, oh, hell no. We made a commitment to ourselves to show up and show out and deliver the goods and, and, and win or die trying and lay it all on the line. And it, it's, it works. Some days you think, today's not my day for a race. I start, like I said, the beta starts telling the alpha, like, it's not our day. We're not ready. And the alpha is just like, dude, we're going through the routine. We're warming up. We're getting on the start line and we're going for it. What's up, everyone? That was Ken Rideout. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and you are listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Every week on this show, I glean insight and inspiration from athletes, coaches, and other personalities to help show you what's possible through the lens of running. And in case you didn't already know, I also put out a weekly newsletter. It's also called, drumroll please, the Morning Shakeout, which comes out on Tuesday mornings, and in it, you'll get an eclectic and interesting roundup of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to lately. You can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe, and your first issue will arrive next week. Okay, this week's guest is the most requested return guest in the history of the podcast. Ken Rideout first appeared on the show almost exactly two years ago on episode 91, and before you listen to this conversation, I recommend going back to check that one out if you haven't already to get Ken's backstory, which will help set the foundation for this episode. So who is this guy? In a lot of ways, Ken is a real average dude. He's a husband and dad to four kids. He works full-time and then some, and like the rest of us, he loves to run. But at the age of 50, he's running faster than ever before, and his approach to life is anything but average. This past year, Ken won the Myrtle Beach Marathon in 230. He finished second in the 50 to 54 age group at the Abbott World Marathon Majors Championship in London, running 229. A few weeks after that, he won the Masters Division at New York, running 233. And then he finished his season with a 110 personal best in the half marathon in Nashville. I've had the pleasure of coaching Ken for a little over two years now, and not only is he one of the most driven athletes that I've ever coached, he's just one of the best, biggest-hearted people that I've ever met. We covered a lot in this conversation, and in it, Ken shared some personal details about his life that he hasn't talked about publicly elsewhere before, but the main theme to come out of this one has to do with the stories that we tell ourselves, the inner dialogue many of us have every time we lace up our shoes, step on the starting line, or sometimes when we're just trying to get out of bed in the morning. Ken and I also talk about responsibility versus pressure, the importance of being dependable to yourself and others, cultivating confidence in everything that you do, and a lot more. 
Before we dive into this one, I first want to thank Tracksmith for supporting this episode of the podcast. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running apparel brand that celebrates the history and evolving culture of running in everything that they do, from the clothes they make to the content they produce to the experiences that they cultivate. I've been running in their gear since 2014, and it's by far the highest quality apparel that you can outfit yourself in. In fact, I'm still rocking some original pieces that fit and function as well as the day that I got them. One of my go-tos this fall has been the lined Reggie Half Tight. Morning temperatures here in the Bay Area where I live have been in the low to mid-40s of late, and these half tights are perfect for those days when shorts don't feel like enough, but long tights are just a little too much. The built-in liner makes them the most comfortable bottoms that I own, and they keep my hamstrings covered and warm whether I'm running short, long, easy, or hard. They've even got a zip pocket in the back for my house or car key. You can check them out for yourself along with some of my other favorite apparel picks at tracksmith.com Mario and use the code Mario at checkout to get free shipping on your order while also helping support LA Saves Track, a campaign to rebuild the dilapidated track facilities at Los Angeles High School, providing access and pathways to opportunity for student-athletes at LA's oldest school. This is an organization I've been aware of for some time now, and it means a lot to me that we can help reinvigorate the athletic programs at one of LA's most underserved schools. So that's tracksmith.com slash Mario, or use the code Mario at checkout, that's M-A-R-I-O, to get free shipping on your order while also helping support LA Saves Track. This episode is also brought to you by Gooder. Gooder are my favorite sunglasses, and not only do they look good, they don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. Best of all, they're super fun. They come in a number of awesome styles and colors. I'm personally a big fan of the OGs, and my favorite colors are a Ginger Soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. Gooders are also super affordable, with most pairs coming in at just 25 to 35 bucks a piece, which makes them way more appealing than those expensive shades that you're almost guaranteed to crush or lose. So, if you'd like to support me in the podcast, treat yourself to a pair, or maybe two or three of Gooders, and head over to gooder.com slash Mario and get 15% off your entire order. That's G-O-O-D-R dot com slash m-a-r-i-o to get 15% off your purchase your face will thank you okay that's it for the intro and the ads one quick note before we get into this one it contains some strong language and difficult topics so consider yourself forewarned and without further ado please enjoy my uninterrupted conversation with ken rideout Did you know that you, Ken Rideout, are the most requested return guest on the Morning Shakeout podcast? Oh, man. Honestly, when you tell me that, I, no uh, bullshit. Like, I could cry. I, I, I'm so... I, when people want to hear it from me and pay attention to what I'm doing, dude, it's so humbling. It's it's incredible. It's like a, It's like a dream come true that someone would be interested in me. I'm like... I can't stress to everyone listening enough. Like I'm just an average, ordinary dude who just suffered a lot and, tr- and tried hard. And at some point, people started to pay attention. And it's like, oh my God, I was torturing myself and suffering. And now people are interested <laughs> in me. It's like a reward for something I was doing that you just never think anyone's 
paying attention or cares. And now to have this kind of attention is, man, it's, it's humbling. When did you notice that people first started to care? After your show. Really? Oh my God. Yeah. It was literally like the running community clearly listens to you like a religion and people started. I mean, it, when I moved to Brentwood, people reached out to me and were like in, in Tennessee outside of Nashville and people were like, Hey, I heard you on the Mario show and I see you're running now. On, I've been following you on Strava. I see you're in Nashville. Uh, I'd love to get together for a run. Um, Suzanne London, a woman in town. I ran with her a few times. She's incredible. She's super strong. I think she ran like. I don't know, 240 something in London, just incredible athlete. But uh, yeah, I would say after that, after my episode with you, a lot of people started to pay attention, relatively speaking. I mean, they're not looking for me like they're looking for the great Des Linden, but <laughs> people, people were paying attention and I, unbeknownst to me, and it's been incredible. Has it been uncomfortable for you at all to get that kind of attention and have people asking you questions and telling you that you're inspiring? I wouldn't say it's uncomfortable. I just stressed to you, it's incredibly humbling. I like you could see some people maybe become a little bit arrogant or overly confident by it, but it's literally like the greatest gift that's ever the, the greatest coincidental gift that's ever happened to me in the sense that I don't. I'm not, I know I'm not special. I'm just hustling. And it's literally like people are celebrating the fact that I've worked hard, not for the attention, but it was just a byproduct of what I was doing. And it doesn't, it, it never feels embarrassing. It always feels like a huge honor. Like I just, I don't have enough time for like, like I can't give people enough time. Like if someone right. asks me, Hey, I want to run with you. I'm like, absolutely. Here's when I'm going to run. I, you know, I can't accommodate all the, like, out of the ordinary request, but if someone reaches out to me, I'm like, hey, if it's if it works, I'll, I'm uh, I'm happy to help in any way I can. What have been some of the most surprising requests or bits of feedback that you've gotten over the last couple of years that more people have been paying attention to you and your running exploits? I would say, in in particular, this past year, um, it, it, it's not that it's unusual. Just I I'm always taken aback when people tag me in their social media posts and they're like, hey, I just ran two, uh, four miles in the rain. I got it done. I was um, uh, channeling my inner Ken Rideout. I was like, oh my God. I, I, I show them to my wife. I'm like, can you imagine? I inspired this guy to run. Like I feel such a responsibility to continue to work hard. So that's been the like, that's been one of the biggest takeaways is that when I see people doing stuff like that, it motivates me. Like I feel a huge sense of responsibility now to be dependable and to show up every day and to post my workouts on Strava. I, I, I posted something the other day that uh, Joe Rogan and David Sinclair were talking about me on Joe's podcast. And I posted it and I was like, I never was looking for this attention, but now that I have it, I feel a tremendous amount of responsibility to the people that are, are, I hesitate to say admire me because it's not like I'm an Olympic champion or something like extraordinary, but anyone who's following along, I feel a responsibility to like live up to that expectation. And even if it's a narrative that I'm only telling myself, which is probably the case, it, it, it works for me and it, it, it creates a level of dependability. And I think that that's one of the most important or, or, or significant traits that you can have as a runner, an athlete, a human, a, a colleague, a dad, a husband, is to be dependable, if nothing else. Like, I know I can depend on myself. When I wake up at a, on a race day and I'm like, man, I really don't want to do this. The weather stinks. I don't feel like I've done enough. 
there's like two voices in my head, that alpha and beta. And the beta is like, go back to bed, dude. This is crazy. No one gives a crap about this. You're the only one that cares. And then the alpha is like, oh, hell no. We made a commitment to ourselves to show up and show out and deliver the goods and, and, and win or die trying and lay it all on the line. And it, it, it's, it works. I just, some days you don't feel like, some days you think, today's not my day for a race. I start, like I said, the beta starts telling the alpha, like, it's not our day, we're not ready. And the alpha is just like, dude, we're going through the routine. We're warming up, we're getting on the start line and we're going for it. And sometimes that when I have the most concern and doubt is when I have the best race. And my wife says it all the time. She'll be like, I'll tell her like, man, I'm not ready for this. I don't feel good. I like, I'm just not feeling it. And, and inevitably I'll have like the best race of my life. And the day when I'm like, oh, I feel so good. I'm going to kill everyone. I'm just feeling it. And she'll be like, all right, you know, manage your expectation. And then, and then something happens. And it's like in New York City where I just ran, um, I guess about a month ago, I suffered. When I say I suffered every step of the way, there wasn't a single mile that was easy. By contrast, two, two weeks after that, I ran the Nashville half marathon, ran a 90 second PR. I never felt so good. I mean, the last mile I was running, like I averaged like a 522 pace, which is fast for me. I ran 110 and at 110, 20 something. I was, I just felt like I, on the right course, I could have run 108. It was a really tough course, but that's, the point is, all along the way, these are stories I'm telling myself based on feedback I'm getting from my yeah. body. But at the end of the day, my body will perform the best it can perform. The, the control center, my brain, I, can, I can't let the emotions control the actions because the emotions in a race can be high and low. And you, you know, in a beginning of a marathon, when you're feeling good, you can't listen to that and start like running five minute pace if your goal is 540. And and by the same token, if your body's telling you this isn't the day and 540 is taking work, you have to almost get into autopilot and be like, no, 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 just keep ticking like 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 uh, an, an addict in rehab, one day at a time, one mile at a time. Just get through the next mile. Let's see how we go. Let's can you do one more mile? Can you give me one more mile at this pace? And that was New York City, and I just. Good Lord, man. I, I hurt the whole time. I, I mean, from the first mile, I was like, come on, man. One of these days. There's so much that I want to dig into with you about what you just said. But the first question I have is, have you always had that alpha and beta voice in your head even before you became an endurance athlete? Yes. And that's just the way I've like recently described it. But like everyone has that. We have that in work where I have like, I suffer massively from a fraud, from a like imposter syndrome or fraud complex. Like I, I, I always have that exercise of like, am I, am I supposed to be here? Like, can I really get this deal done if it's work? Uh, am I supposed to be at, um, when I was working with David Sinclair, we, we had dinner one night with Tony Blair and I was like, in my mind, I was like, am, do they know that I'm here? Like someone going to, is secret service going to come and throw me out of this office? Does security know that I I'm here? And I would like literally had this conversation with myself of like, do they know that I'm a clown? Like, how am I in here with like a head of state and a future Nobel Prize winner? Like, it was it was surreal. And the same thing happens in has happened to me throughout my life of like doubting myself. But there was always that one that that alpha voice that was stronger. Like, 
even when I think back in my earliest memories of my career, when I went to New York, my first job was like I was in a pharmaceutical sales job for a minute and I saw young guys my age working in finance and making a lot of money. If you had told me prior to me moving to New York that you should go to New York and work in finance, I would tell people, you might as well tell me that I should be an astronaut. How would I ever even think to do that? I don't know anyone that works in finance. My only experience is working as a guard in a prison. Um, and, and no one in my house went to college. I mean, I have a degree in sociology from Framingham State. The execs on Wall Street weren't exactly like looking for me. But I, but I, I saw an opportunity and I convinced myself that I could do it. And I got my foot in the door and, it, and, and things accelerated quickly because the same, I did the same thing there that I've done with running. I just decided it was important to me and it was important enough to figure it out at any by any cost necessary. And I just, I literally just worked my ass off trying to figure it out, always feeling like an imposter. Where does that come from? Oh man, I, I don't know. I think from my youngest memory, you know, growing up in the inner city in Boston and being raised the way I was, like I told you, I worked in the prison. My brother and stepdad were inmates in that prison. So I wasn't exactly around like uh, thought, uh, universal thought leaders and, um, you know, the most, you know, appropriate people in the world. But from my youngest age, I was like, I'm not, I'm not supposed to be here. I, I, like I remember suffering from massive anxiety as a child just because I couldn't wait to get out of there. I didn't know how. I didn't know why. I had no frame of reference to think that I knew that people lived a different lifestyle and that people had families that were traditional and like loved each other and looked up, looked after each other. But that those it was almost like those emotions in my early childhood weren't shared. They weren't shared amongst my friends. They weren't shared amongst my family. It was like, you know, just, I just knew it wasn't right. And I knew I wanted to get out of there. And when I went to college, that was when I realized number one, okay, there's, there's like, there's a better way that there's a better life out there for me. But number two, the, my college experience was not very positive because I realized how ill-prepared I was and how immature I was, relatively speaking, to my peers. I just, I just, I, I mean, when I look back at it now, it's, it's, it's sad. I'm like, man, I just didn't, I didn't have the emotional tools to be on my own as an adult. And, yeah. and I mean, it, we could do a whole episode on that, but I just, I just wasn't prepared. And um, it took me a long time to figure out how to be an adult and, 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 but, but I, but I was always good at kind of faking my way through things until I could figure out the solution. Objectively from the outside looking in, you're a pretty successful guy. You're married, you have four kids, you've had a successful career in finance. You're an incredible athlete. Hearing you describe that doesn't sound like you're a super confident person all the time. Do you suffer from a lack of confidence? Would you consider yourself a confident person? I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I, I think that I'm very confident. I know what I can do, but I'm sharing with people like my inner dialogue and how, how I think a lot of people feel. It's like, I think what, what makes people successful and what drives people is trying to fill those areas where they might feel inadequate, like by making up for it, by working super hard. So I guess if, if anything, maybe I'm being a little bit vulnerable and sharing some of my like inner thoughts and, and thought process about myself. I never feel overly confident per se, but I know like I know 
I can depend on me. I know I'm going to be good with whatever it is I have to do. It's just a matter of like feeling good about how, feeling good about the processes that I'm putting in place. And so on one hand, yes, I'm confident and I'm portraying confidence. But on the other hand, I never lose that sense of like, you're just one bad decision away from throwing it all away. And, um, you know, having, having had that type of life and, you know, for a while as a young adult struggling with, um, drug addiction and, and using opioids to kind of deal with that pain that I described earlier of being, being very uncomfortable in my own skin thrown into like the real world and being ill prepared is part of the reason why I take as much pride as I do in my children. And part of that is that I picked the right partner to marry and have children with because she had the life that I didn't have. She had a beautiful family that loved and cared for each other. And, and they were an excellent example. And when I met my wife, I'm like, that's what I want for myself and my kids. And that, that was like one of the most important decisions I've ever made. My kids have the best mother in the world. And um, you, using my experiences and, and back to the addiction, sorry, back to the addiction, I started to use drugs in college, like first cocaine, and then eventually found opioids, which was like when I discovered that feeling of like, oh my God, I never thought you could feel so carefree and so uninterested in what anyone else thought. But again, I think that same thing with the running. Once I realized what I was doing and how deep I had gotten into this hole, then I had to dig myself out of it. I was basically a functioning addict. And at some point I was like, nope, it's time to take control of your own destiny and fix this. And if anyone out there is listening and has gone through um, withdrawals from you know daily opioid abuse, they will tell you that that's a fate almost worse than death because it's like you're suffering like you've had the worst illness in the world. Just imagine the worst case of the flu, but you can't tell anyone you're that sick that you're like basically sick from withdrawals and, and, and you can make that feeling go away, boink, just like that, just by taking some more. But, and, and, and the feeling doesn't go away in three days, four days. After like seven to 10 days, you start to feel like you mu- you're, you're not gonna die. Like, okay, I've gotten through the worst of it, but it isn't like, all right, back on track. It's like another month or two before your like brain chemistry gets back in line. And it was, you know, I was, I, I gave a, I was talking to a group down in um, Austin, Texas recently. Uh, a friend of mine, Brian Maza, has a group called um, HPLT, High Performance Life Training, and he does these like fitness retreats. And some, and I was talking, and like you, someone said, it seems like you've had a lot of successes. What are, what's something that you've failed at? And, and, subconsciously maybe i was in denial but i didn't want to talk about this addiction i didn't i didn't want to address that cuz it's it doesn't fit the narrative of what people know about me i've never really spoken about this publicly i mean obviously my wife knows i've suffered in silence with this for years and it's something that just never leaves it's it's always there it's always like you, know, you can find that inner peace anytime you're ready to get, ready to, ready to get high and it's like a constant um struggle. And, um, so that's something that, you know, I don't want, I don't know. I don't want people to look at me and be like, uh, yeah, this guy's like perfect. I'm the furthest thing from perfect. I'm flawed as fuck, but I, I don't, 
I refuse to like accept those flaws. I'm working on them and I'm working hard. And like I said, I've never really spoken about this publicly, but listen, this is part of who I am. If that's, I, you can't run from the truth, man. The truth will set you free and you're only as sick as the secrets you keep. And that's it. And that's, that's so, you know, when you say objectively look successful, yes, I've done a good job of crafting that narrative, not, 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 not necessarily consciously creating, crafting a, a narrative around me, but certainly not advertising my flaws. But part of my own therapy and healing is sharing my experiences with people and just living my own truth. Hey, this is who I am. I'm, you know, when I think about that, <clears throat> I get a little bit emotional because... I wasted a lot of time. <clears throat> but I'm here now and I'm good to go. Well, I appreciate you sharing that and opening up in a very vulnerable way. In the three years that I've known you, the two years that I've coached you, I didn't know any of that. That was all news to me just now, what you shared in the last five minutes. And I know that you haven't talked about it publicly and in a lot of cases privately, but I think going back to what we're talking about at the beginning of this conversation, that's why people like you because <laughs> you're no bullshit. You're, you're raw, you're open, you're honest, and you're not perfect. And you don't try to portray yourself as perfect, even though it can look like that from the outside looking in. But you're just a flawed human being like the rest of us. And, and I say that very very deliberately, like the rest of us, we're all flawed in our own ways. And a lot of us for, for various reasons, and I'm not saying that everyone has to, don't talk about that. Don't share no, it. They'd rather just painful. portray themselves as successful. It is. It's, it, a lot of it gets, you know, a lot of it gets suppressed, I think. Uh, and yeah. it's hard to talk about. But you talking about it here in the way that you just did, someone's listening to this who may have found themselves in a similar spot to where you were years ago, and that's going to help them feel less alone. It may help inspire them to go, to go, you know, seek some, seek some therapy or outside assistance or something like that. And just, you know, take that next step for themselves in their, in their life. And that's hugely valuable. Yeah, man, listen, life isn't perfect. No one's perfect. Be careful about meeting your heroes because inevitably you're going to be disappointed because, Everyone has their own journey, and uh, you know. Listen, I didn't come. On, I didn't come on here tonight thinking I'm gonna like uh, pour my heart out and like get emotional. But hey, <laughs> maybe that maybe that's part of the appeal. What you see is what you get. I'm like, I try to be as honest as I can be, and um, listen. There's a part, like I say, the two voices in my head. There's one part of this that beta voice is like, "You're a loser. You're a fucking idiot. I can't believe you did this. What a what a what a weakling." And then there's the other guy who's like, "Listen, you made a mistake. Let's pick the pieces up and get it cracking." And that was, to be honest with you, that was this exercising and in, in endurance sports became my drug of choice. It made me feel good when I was done. Even now, when I'm having a bad day, like one of the one of the luxuries of living in Nashville versus LA is we have a lot more space. I have a gym in the basement, and I'll get into like my my physique in a minute because I think I don't have a traditional runner's physique by design. I'm not trying to be a runner. I I, I wasn't trying to win marathons when I started this. I was trying to be healthy emotionally and physically, and it just so happened that I started running fast, but I wasn't willing to like sacrifice the other aspects of my life and and 
honestly, like my physique to be like a fast runner. I wanted to have everything. And, um, so when I'm not feeling well or feeling down emotionally, because that's not feeling well physically is like, you can usually identify what the problem is and, and deal with it. Not feeling well emotionally is a, it's a, it's, it's a dark place, man. It's, it's, it's a prison and, 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 and a place that I wouldn't wish on anyone. Honestly, like I wouldn't wish that even when I'm angry at people and I want to punch the shit out of someone, I never think I wish that they had the sadness that I've experienced in my life. And not that I've had it terribly bad, but everyone's journey is unique to them. It doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside. It matters what's the story that you're telling yourself. And I, the story I've told myself is like, I've made some terrible mistakes that I can never live down. And it's baggage that I carry with me forever. And I always will. And, you know, it's part of the journey. So I hope if someone's listening to this, that, that they get something out that they realize like, yo, this can happen to anyone. I would have been the first one to tell us. I grew up with junkies and drug addicts and I'd tell them all the time that what losers they were. And I still feel like that, but I feel the same way about myself when I was making bad decisions. But I know that I was making those decisions. The, 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 the drugs aren't the problem. The problem is, why are you deciding to do that? What are you running from? And the truth is, when people think about opioids or painkillers, it, it's, it's not just killing pain, it's killing joy. It's numbing everything. It's numbing your physical pain, but it's numbing your emotional response. And when you're giving your body a false um, reward uh, at your whim, you're throwing off a massive ecosystem because your brain is programmed to like recognize re- uh, rewards and, and feel joy. And when you are giving it a, a reward willy nilly and such a huge reward, like in terms of your dopamine and serotonin, this huge spike that eventually that starts to like level off and getting high doesn't get you high anymore. It just keeps you from getting sick. And that's when you're like in the depths of hell. That's that's a prison I can't describe to you. And 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 look, it's not like a, a one time thing where I was like, oh, I'm 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 addicted to these drugs. I'm gonna get off. It was like an on and off thing for several years of like a few months on, two three weeks off, going through hell each time of being like, I'm never gonna be able to do this again. And then eventually, I found a, um, a drug called Vivitrol. That's basically an opioid blocker. And um, interestingly, I spoke to the company recently about possibly being a spokesperson for them. And um, that drug was what really like got me off the opioid. So if someone's listening to this, I can't recommend that strong enough that you get into a um, detox. Um, once you're clean for a week, they can give you this drug called Vivitrol. That's an injection that is a slow uh, times release uh, once a month injection that blocks opioid receptors that you can't get high. It won't, it, no matter what you do, it's like almost like a version of Narcan that reverses the effects of opioids. And that was like, and, and that's how powerful this addiction was that I, I physically couldn't do it myself anymore. The emotional attachment I had to this was overpowering to the point where I had to acknowledge to myself that you can't do this. Like that was, that was, a, hard, that was a hard experience. But I will say that that forged me into the person I am. I'm not wasting another day in my life. I, 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 I I only have a limited time left, man. I'm 50. If I live to 100, that means I only have 50 summers left. Like uh, my friend Jesse Itzler preaches this all the time. We only have limited time here and I'm done wasting time. I've wasted enough and have done enough damage to myself emotionally that 
there's no shortcuts in life, man. Anything you're dealing with, if you don't deal with it now, you're going to deal with it later. But one way or another, you're dealing with it. If you're up for it, I'd love to dig into how you unwound that opioid addiction cycle that you were yeah. in. You mentioned the drug Vivitrol that you yep. took. It blocks opioid receptors so that you're not addicted to the drug anymore. You can't be yeah. addicted to the drug yeah. anymore. You can't what get high. Some of the, you can't get high from it. So what are some of the additional steps that you took besides taking that drug, which sounds like it was initial catalyst, but is that where endurance sports came into the picture yes. for you? Yeah, I started to do endurance sports and endurance sports and any kind of drugs don't mix in terms of recovery and peak performance. It's like you just can't perform. So I, um, yeah, when I was going through the detox process for like the 10,000th time with, but this time in a clinical setting, they were like, <laughs> I'd come in and check in every day. It was such a, it was such a demoralizing experience. Looking back at it now, I just have to laugh. Like, what the? Fuck? Look at the position I put myself in. Like, what a disgrace. But I would go there, and literally, I had like no sympathy for myself. You know, I was my own worst enemy. So I'd go there, and they'd be like, "Okay, how you feeling?" I'm like, "Like I want to die." And they're like, "Okay, that's to be expected." What'd you do last night? I'm like, "I ran ten miles." And they're like, "What?" I'm like, "Yeah." And I'm going to keep running 10 miles. I refuse to let this do any more damage to me. Like I, I need to, I need to like not in a sense punish myself, but in a way like not let this control me anymore. I know I want, I, I want to get fit. And, um, I'm, I just, I ran every day on, on like feeling like I was going to die. Let's dig into that. Did you feel like you needed to punish yourself in some way because you were, unwilling to forgive yourself for some of the mistakes you made and decisions that you made? Yeah, uh, yeah, at the time. And I would honestly, I feel like to a certain extent, there's there's a little bit of that now, but there's less of that. I mean, this has been like, you know, well over 10 years ago that I went through this process, but it never leaves. I mean, that, that, that feeling never leaves. And I haven't always been perfect. Like I've made lots of mistakes, but, you know, it is what it is. But um, the the now there's less, there's more, I have a, a little bit more sympathy for myself and a little bit more understanding that what I was trying to escape through like, you know, through therapy and like, you know, I haven't done a ton of therapy, but just through like uh, a lot of self-help and like work through and, 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 and just understanding, understanding myself better. And um, so while Yes, there's a level of punishing myself now. It's not as much as a desire to like make up for lost times and like get the most out of myself. So there is, I would say more so I feel now when I wake up, I'm like, I have a responsibility to myself to like take care of myself, number one. But number two, have pride in something, take ownership in this like running journey. And, 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 and that's become kind of my thing is like, hey, I, I, I'm I'm doing it for myself, but I, I appreciate that other people are watching too. But so it's complex. I know that was like not the clearest answer, but I, I have a complex relationship with my, with myself. Well, I, I think we all do. And I mean, taking that a step further, I think many of us have complex relationships with running, endurance sports, whatever our chosen pursuit is, because our relationship to it can and does evolve over the course of a lifetime. And I'm, I'm interested in the evolution of your relationship with running. At what point was it something that you began to 
take some pride in, as you just described? I, you know, honestly, it was probably around the time that we did our interview. I had run, um, if, if for anyone who didn't hear our last episode, I had initially, I, maybe it was like 13, 14. I, I wanted to run a sub three hour marathon. I did that. I ran a 258. I don't even remember where, maybe Boston, which is funny because at the time it was like such a goal. And when I did it, I was like, yes. But within a day, I was like, I bet I can go to 245. And uh, it's been like the bane of my wife's existence because she's like, oh, my God, you're going to keep doing this? Like so much commitment. Now she's just, it's become part of my life. I try to do it in the morning and not inconvenience anyone else. But, I mean, even if we go skiing or to the beach, like I, when I say I run 10 miles every day, you know this. Even when you're like, run four miles today, I'm like, I'm running 10 miles every day. It's like a non-negotiable. Um, Unless you're tapering, I don't think I can get you. No, exactly. On a taper, yeah. When when it gets down to like performance and wanting to win, yes, I follow the taper. Um, but I mean, I, I even the day after London, I flew home the day of the race, got back here, ran four miles. I was so angry. We can talk about that, what happened in that race. We'll get I ran, into it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I tried to run to sub 230. Then I was like, I bet I can do 245. I ran 245 in New York. And then the next race out in, in LA, I forget the year, let's say 15, six, 16 or 17, I ran 240 in, in, in LA. And then a few months later, I ran 233 in Tucson, very fast course, uh, net downhill, but not as, you know, when you look at it on a profile of Tucson, you're like, oh my God, you're running downhill the whole time. This is going to be like, I'm going to run like 210. But it, it, it looks on the profile much faster than it is in person. It's, it's, it's a gradual decline, but it's, it's fast, but not as easy as it looks on paper. Anyway, I ran 233 there, finished third. And that's when I was like, holy shit, I bet I can win a marathon. But then I ran 234 in um, CIM, 235. And that's when I reached out to you and was like, okay, I need a coach now. I'm, I'm so close. And <laughs> after working with you for, I think we trained together for 12 weeks, if I'm not mistaken, in um, yeah, 2019. Yeah, weeks leading up to CIM. Yep. And uh, listen, I was like, I ran a half marathon right when we started. I ran with Des Linden. We ran the um, Philadelphia half marathon. I ran like 114 or something, which is like not very good for me. And uh, I was like, damn, I'm in terrible shape here. Because I had run, I think, one maybe 112, 113. But I felt like... I could do it, but but the point is, up until that point, until I started working with you, my training was like no structure, literally 10 miles a day, long run on Saturday or Sunday, a long run on, let's say, Saturday, and then on Sunday, I would ride my bike like 50 to 100 miles when I lived in LA, um, and, and and I loved it. That was an awesome time in my life and experience, but no one was really looking for me, and no one was paying attention, and then I won the Malibu half marathon, nothing, I won Pasadena half marathon, nothing, I ran 228 in Sacramento, and people were like, okay, but when we did the podcast, I think that's when people in the running community were like listening, but then this year, it's like gone to the next, like this year, like, I mean, I talked to Matt Futterman, he's got it, one of his reporters is reaching out to me to write a story in the New York Times, um, uh, I spoke to the editor of Men's Health. I think he asked, he, he may write a story. Like now people are starting to pay attention. And to be honest with you, I'm a little disappointed that I haven't heard from any of like, with the exception of the number one podcast, the, the number one um, running media outlet in the world, The Morning Shakeout, that none of these like 
traditional running um, publications have reached out because I think, and, and again, like I don't say this to be arrogant, but when you got a 50-year-old guy, I won my age group in New York by 16 minutes. I won the Masters over 40. I mean, I won the Masters. Like the previous winners were like Meb, uh, Meb Kofleski, Abdi Abdi Rockman, and Ken Rideout. Like, come on, man. I'm surprised and a little bit disappointed that some of the mainstream outlets don't want to share this because I am, I am every runner. I'm everyone. I have no natural talent, no genetic gifts. I did this with from nothing. The first marathon I ran, I ran 320 in 1997 with no training, not knowing what I was doing, which is decent, but it's not like, oh my God, this guy's like superstar. If he started running as a kid, he'd be an Olympic champion. That's not me. But I, I don't disagree with that. But I also know just from having coached you for the last two years, you have a drive in you that is that is uncommon. Um, it is it is an uncommon drive. You have a competitive streak, which I want to talk about. That is is honestly unmatched by many elite athletes, and I think that's been probably one of the biggest keys to your competitive success. But I also think it can be a, a detriment because it is so um, it is so strong sometimes that it can it can maybe get the best of you and mm-hmm. you have a work ethic that is just completely mm-hmm. uncommon. I mean, you know, you're, you're not a professional athlete. You work full time. You got four kids. <laughs> um, you host a boxing podcast, you travel quite a bit, but you put the work in, um, yeah. and you don't, you don't make excuses. And I think there are a lot of average people out there not saying everyone has to be great, but they could be, uh, if they were wired like you, if they were, if they were willing to kind of put the work in around everything else that they've got going on in their life, if they had this insatiable desire to get the best out of themselves every time they step to the start line. I also think, I mean, just listen to some of the stuff you described here. And I obviously know a bit of it just from our last podcast and subsequent conversations that we've had your upbringing and the things that you've experienced growing up. I mean, those, those shape you. Uh, and I think they shape your, your perspective. And when you hit some of those tough moments in, in a race, I mean, those aren't really all that tough compared to some of the other shit that you've dealt with, you know, in your life. So I, I mean, I think a lot of that stuff is, is uncommon and, and what, you know, what separates you, but yeah, at the end of the day, you're a 50 year old dad of four who doesn't do this professionally, (laughs) but you're getting faster at 50. And I, and I honestly still believe you have a sub 225 marathon in you and that's going (laughs) to come, you know, at, at 51 or 52 years old. So anyway, I I don't know where I was going with that. I don't know that I necessarily have a follow-up question to it, but I just had to provide some of that perspective (laughs) for the listeners here. I want to touch on two things is like, number one, when I'm in a race, yes, my experiences have, have like molded me into the person that I am and, and my mentality having been through. And look, I don't share those childhood stories to be like, woe is me. Look at me. I know a lot of people had it worse than me, but like the thought of when I tell my kids now, when I threaten them with a spanking and like the, you know, they might've had like combined between the four of them, like three or four spankings ever. I I use the term spanking liberally, like a whack on the ass. When I think about getting hit with a belt every single day from like five to 12, when I finally was like, you hit me with that belt again, I'm going to bust your jaw. Um, Like at the time, it didn't seem out of the ordinary. But when I look back now, I'm like, if someone saw what I went through, they would have called the police. Like you can't hit a kid with a, it's insanity. But a lot of people got treated like this when I was a kid, so it didn't seem out of the out of the ordinary. But part of the 
inner dialogue that I go through when I'm suffering in a race sincerely is like, yo, no one's going to punch me in the face. No one's going to jump on my back and choke me unconscious. That's like real fear. That's like, you know, in the fifth round of a UFC title fight and you're completely gassed and the guy's on a, on a, it got you on a full mount and raining punches down. I literally visualized that could be happening, but it's not. I'm just running like me, the biggest nerd and some other nerd racing to try to win the uh, Pasadena half marathon. I'm like, I'm a tougher nerd than you are. And I use the word nerd lovingly with runners because I consider myself the biggest. I'm the like king of the nerds. Um, but so, so that's number one. The other thing I would say is with regards to mindset, I was t- when I was talking to those people in Austin, I said, I want to win like like almost to the point where I'm like willing to die to win, like win or die trying. And um, Allie Kiefer posted something on Facebook this week and she said she she was like inspired by me, but she said when she initially heard that, she was like, oh, this guy's crazy or zany. I forget how she described it. And I responded to her and I said, yeah, I get that. I can I can understand that. Yeah, because I don't want to die. Of course, I don't want to die. If I, if I wanted to die, I would already be dead. <laughs> I have a very strong mind. Um, but... What I would say, I would give use the example of uh, Mount Everest. Um, 4,000 people have climbed Mount Everest, roughly. 4,000 people have summited. 200 people are supposedly have died on that mountain. That's 5%. Can you imagine if in a race of, of uh, 100 people, five of them died? Like you'd be like, dude, that's a death race. Like you'd have to be crazy. So I would argue that every single person that climbed Mount Everest was in some way, shape, or form prepared to die to achieve their goals. And again, I don't want to die. But when I'm racing, I mean, I've left races in an ambulance. I, I'm, I'm ready to empty the tank. And in New York, as I was coming up the finishing shoot, I look back over my shoulder and who's closing on me? Shalane Flanagan. I'm like, oh, hell no, you're not going to pass me in the finishing shoot. I mean, I must have looked like a spastic with arms and legs. I was dying. I mean, like I said, I suffered every step. But because Shalane chased me down, I beat her by one second, but I won the master's title by three seconds. And you know how everything is staggered there. There's so many people like- Well, no, you won it by one second. You know she's 40 now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, no, She exactly. was your competition. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, so I don't knock you for, for trying out kicker. I mean, she would have been the overall Masters champion had she gone by you. Listen, no offense to anyone, but I'm sorry, guy or girl. I'm not letting anyone get an easy pass on me. There's no, there's no easy wins. My kids don't get easy wins. Like, no, sorry. Part of, like, being a champion is knowing how to lose and get better. And I, my wife's like, let the kids win once in a while. Absolutely not. There's like, I tell them like, you're going to lose more than you win in life if you're trying hard because you should try a lot of things. And if you couldn't, if you knew you wouldn't lose, why would you even bother? So I'm not like uh, trying to be a bully with them, but it's like part of life lessons. And um, so, but yeah, I beat her by one second, but I beat the next guy by three seconds. And I was like, oh my God, thank God I wouldn't have kicked if she wasn't trying to chase me down. Um, so like I said, I don't want to die, but in my mind, I like genuinely have a win or die trying mentality where I'm like, I feel terrible. Someone, I, I was talking to someone recently in an interview and they were like, aren't you worried about injuries? I'm like, no, why would I worry about that? I don't want to get injured, but I don't waste energy thinking about injuries. Like, I mean, at 50 and running that fast, like, I mean, don't you even, th- aren't you even nervous about dying? And it just instinctively, again, I don't have a death wish. I'm not looking to die. But I said to him, dude, at a race, I'm ready to die, afraid of dying. Like, no, that that thought never enters my mind. I'm like, I'm convinced that I can't die from running. So I'll just push myself until like I collapse because 
I don't think that it's possible. So, you know, I know that sounds crazy to people, but this is part, listen, you get the truth from me. I, I told you all my friggin' flaws and I'm telling you, my mindset is that of, I don't think I can die doing this. And if that's what happens, I'm like, okay, let's see. I don't think yeah. it's going to happen. I don't want to die, but I'm going to fucking die trying. I'm, I'm chuckling because, because I know you, but I know it's that mindset and that mentality, which is not for everyone, that <laughs> separates you in the competitive arena. It, one of the things that separates you in the competitive arena. I mean, you can't just you know will yourself to run a 233 yeah. marathon. I mean, you've put in a shitload of work to do that. I mean, you've run 228, but 233 at, at New York and to be able to dig that deep at, at the finish line. I'm, I'm curious, like, is mindset something that you actively work on and put time aside for? I wouldn't say that I have like specific exercises that I do for mindset, but I'll give you a perfect example of how I toughen my mind around running and how other people can do this too. And again, to your point, I, I, I don't have anything special. I have no talent. I promise you that if you do, if someone out there listening to this and they, 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 they stink at running or they're very slow, if they do what I did, run 10 miles a day for three or four years and then get a coach. <laughs> yeah, you're going to get better and you're going to get you're going to shock the world and you're going to shock yourself by being and if you like the the what I have, it's free to everyone. I'm telling you what to do. I post every single workout I do on Strava. Nothing is a secret. The incremental gains, the workouts, everything's there. And so two things. First, I'm going to come back to the mindset thing, but what I was going to tell you is that 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 attitude, that win or die try attitude is easy on race day. What's hard is when in August when you're like, here, do six 400s followed by eight 800s or whatever it is on the track. Dude, it's so hot and so intense. I literally will beg my wife to like, please drive up to the track in one hour, bring me a change of clothes and two freezing cold bottles of water and two towels so that I can towel myself and a change of shoes so I can change my sopping wet gear, put on dry gear and finish the workout. Like I did that multiple times this summer. That to me is a thousand times harder than kicking into the finish line at the New York Marathon. I can see the finish, it's right there. This is almost over, I see you, I'm, I'm coming. When you're on the track in August, the same shit's gonna happen tomorrow, the same long run is coming Saturday and you're like, how is my old friggin' body gonna absorb this training? That's the hard part. And then with the mindset stuff, I'll give you a perfect example. In the past couple of weeks, it's friggin' rained here a lot and it's getting cold. I mean, today it was in the 20s, but there were several days over the last few weeks. Now I'm out of train. I don't have a race coming up, but I'm back on my 10 mile bullshit every day. It's that's, that's just what I do. And, um, couple of the days it was raining in like 35 degrees and dude, I mean, raining, like pouring. It's one thing when it starts raining, when you're out there, you're like, all right, I'm almost done. When it's pouring before you start and you're like, maybe in 15 minutes it'll slow down and it just progressively gets hotter. I tell myself, okay, this is a mental exercise day. This is going to suck. I hate being wet. I hate it. I don't like being wet at the beach. I don't like having a wet bathing suit on at the pool. I'll put on a dry one. I don't like the feeling. So when that, when it's doing that, I just tell myself like, all right, it might rain on race day. No one's watching. No one cares. I care. And I just, and my wife will be like, dude, why are you even doing this? Like no one cares. You're not getting paid to do this. And I'm like, I'm accountable to myself. I, I don't want to do this, but I'm doing it. I, and, and that's to me, that all contributes to the overall mindset when you're in a, a, a finishing shoot and someone's trying to pass you and you're like, 
this is nothing compared to what I've done. A word you've used multiple times throughout this conversation is responsibility. And you feel a dual responsibility, one to yourself, and then, as you mentioned, to other people who are now following you, who take inspiration from your example. Do you feel pressure at all? Yeah. You crazy? Tons. I'd be, I like, I've, I ask I've, that because you haven't used that word at all. It's always been responsibility, but <laughs> pressure seems to be implied. But I, I felt like you were being very deliberate about not using that word. Nah, I feel pressure, but it's pressure from myself. Like I've always told people all along this journey is I know no one cares except me about like my performance being good. I don't think people are going to be like, oh, I knew it. He sucks. He finally had a crap race. But I feel, um, I would say more so as people are paying attention, I feel it's not really pressure because like you asked about earlier about confidence. When I get on the star line, I'm confident I'm going to empty the tank. I'm confident that the people around me are going to have to kill me to beat me. I'm confident that I'm going to make them miserable and I'm going to ruin someone's day. And there's a, the competitor in me is like, you guys have not, I'll tell you a funny story. I went to the Nashville half marathon and I'm loosening up and I realized they gave me A, someone else's number and B, when they gave me my own number, it said marathon and I'm running the half. So I'm like, what the hell? And it all starts together. And I know that I'm going to be on the front. I'm, I'm racing to win. So I want everyone to know, listen, they gave me the wrong number. I'm afraid. Like I even said to the kid when I was running with this to win me and another kid. And I said, listen, I'm pretty sure they're going to disqualify me because I have a marathon number on and I'm running the half. So before the race started, I said, hey, you, I have a marathon number. I signed up for the half. I don't know where the mistake was. And there is an elite wave. I, I'm assuming elite pro. I don't know what it was, but I said, I put you my projected finish time of 108. There's no friggin' way. I don't recognize anyone here. There's no way that anyone else here is going to run that fast. I'm supposed to be in this wave. And they were like, no, 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 no. The woman literally said to me like, no, 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 those guys are super fast. Like you don't want to be up there. They're going to like come through so fast. They'll run you over. Dude, I don't know why the woman doesn't know me from a hole in the wall, but I was so offended. I was like, run me over. I said, I'm going to fucking embarrass these guys. I said, how dare you? They're going to run me over. I just, I know that she doesn't know me. It doesn't matter. But this is, it does, like I said before, it doesn't matter what the reality is. It's what story am I telling myself? And I felt so slighted that I was like, how dare you? No one is running me over at anything. So there was, there is that level of confidence, but at the same time, I'm like, okay, I started warming up. We took it out. I took it out hard and me and, and right away, I, I knew the kid who had won it the last few years is only because I was looking at what are the fast, what are the past winners? His name was Nick French, uh, 27 year old kid who ran at Vandy. He's got himself listed as a professional runner on Strava with no offense to Nick, but a 110 half. I don't know what pros you're going to beat with that time, but that's, he's, he, he ran a one, he did run a 222 in uh, Columbus, um, two weeks before and I ran New York two weeks before. So him and I were, um, were together off the front and I kept like trying to talk to him just to get, look for a little edge here or there. But real runners are very hard to like, they're very hard to like upset the apple cart. Amateurs very easy to like get them, like just do like little tricks to like throw them off the game, intimidate them without being a jerk. But I was saying to him like, oh, you're from Nashville? Oh, oh you know what neighborhood we're in now? But he, he gave me nothing. He was just like, yeah. Yeah. Yes. No. And I was like, uh, and then finally at one point I'm like, oh, it looks like it's just me and you. And he's like, yeah, it looks that way. And I go, I know you don't want to lose to a 50 year old man. And he's like, you're 50 years old. And I was like, yep. And I'm going to fucking die to try to win. <laughs> he was like, and, and then at like six miles, he got a little gap and he held like a 30 second gap on me the whole way. And I was like, damn it. 
But this was, was in Nashville just a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think you told me this story. No, no, no. I didn't because it was like kind of a throwaway race. I signed up at the last minute. It was like two weeks after New York. I mean, to the weekend after New York, I could still barely walk. But I had the best race of my life. I ran 90-second PR, and uh, man, I just felt awesome. And the race course was very tough, 600 feet of elevation gain over a half marathon. I feel like on a flatter course, I just it was like one of those magical days where everything was clicking. The weather was perfect. The wind was low. It was cold. I was like, man, I'm in a zone. I just felt awesome. Since we're on the topic of Nashville, I had this in my mind to ask you, and I think this is probably the best opportunity. That's where you live now. And I think the first race that you've run in Nashville, I think you ran a 10 miler back earlier this year, somewhere close to (laughs) Nashville. (laughs) But my, my point being, you travel a lot to most of your races and your family doesn't go to a lot of your races, but they were able to be there for this one and meet you at the finish line and kind of see you in action. What was that like for you? Cause I know that's not a common occurrence. It's, um, it's, <laughs> I hesitate to say this, but it's always like anticlimactic. I think in that Nashville race, I got in that 10 miler, the bell buckle 10 miler. In my mind, I'm like, oh, a little country race in, in outside of Nashville, I'm going to destroy everyone. Like I have confidence. I, I know what I'm capable of, but three division one, active division one college kids blew the doors off me. And uh, I didn't run that fast. It was like 10 miles. I want to say I ran like 54 something, but I mean, I ran much faster in Nashville per mile. It was a tough course, but it was so hot and humid. My friggin' heart rate, which I never look at, was through the roof. I think it might have been like 185, which is insane for me. Um, but I just, that, again, that that heat, I'm just not good in the heat and I suffered, man, did I suffer. Um, but having, I mean, having the, having the kids in the race, I mean, they were at, they've been to a few races that I've won and you think in your head, like, oh my God, they're going to see me win. We're all going to like, they're going to be so proud. And they're just like, uh, dad, can we get out of here now? I'm like, can I wait around and see if they're going to give like an award? It's like, even if it's a plastic trophy, there's something rewarding about getting some symbol of the victory. And they're like, yeah, not interested. Literally, it's kind of like, you know, I'm the tallest short person. (laughs) when I win some of these races. But I think that's also what drives me is like, if I win the race, I've convinced myself that everyone else at the race stunk. And my wife will be like, but that's, you're in a no-win situation. And I'm like, to a certain extent, yes, that's right. But that's the story I have to create for myself to keep myself getting up and continuing to race. Yeah, I I think that's an interesting point that you bring up. So if I'm being honest with you, one of my biggest frustrations as a coach is that you're never satisfied. Um, I also think that's what makes you a great athlete. But for example, let's rewind. And and we're jumping all over the place here. But this year, I mean, just a couple months ago, you run the London Marathon. It's the World Marathon Majors Championship. We've been targeting this for a year now since they announced that it was, it was going to be in October of 2021. We had a great training cycle leading up to it. You were super fit. You go there. You run your ass off. You might have went out a little too hard, if we're being honest. Mm-hmm. Unraveled a bit the last 10K. Finished 229 and some change. It's your second fastest marathon you've ever run on arguably a, a harder course than where you ran your personal best at, at CIM. And you find out, not when you cross the line, but after the fact that you finished second in the 50-54 age group. There's another guy who ran 
like 45, 50 seconds faster than you. Turns out he was in another wave. So you never saw each other the entire race. You're the second fastest, you know, 50 to 54 year old ostensibly in the world, in the marathon for 2021. And no, no word of a lie to people listening to this. The text you sent me after the race, the word you used was, I'm inconsolable. Yep. Right now. I still am. I'm still, I still am. I'm enraged. Not at my performance at, and and I haven't talked about this publicly, but they make a big deal about this. The World Championships, Abbott's the sponsor, it's the World Marathon Majors Age Group World Championships. You have to qualify to get there. They have, and I mean, dude, they went above and beyond. They had a special uh, staging area for us. There's three separate start areas in in London, just like New York. They they all merged together, let's say mile 304. I may be off, but they merged together a few miles into the race. So, like, let's say pro men are in one area. Um, Amateur age group, amateur men and women are in another start area. And the age group world championship have our own designated start area. We have our own special numbers on front and back. So you know who you're racing against. It's a race within the race. They went to great lengths to do this. So the race starts and I take it out. And at two miles, I am blowing the doors off the field. I am like alone with the motorcycles. And I'm like, I've got this. I'm going to do this. Okay, let me get, let me gather myself and be smart here. I'm going a little hard, but I feel great. Weather's good. And we merge together. So now we're merging in with pros and age group amateurs. And look, at New York, I was 50th. In, in, in London, maybe I was 70th. So, you know, I've got, let's say, 70 people up the road over the course of, let's say, a mile or two. But it's spread out. And I can see the people, you know, 10 people in front of me. And I'm not looking behind me. But if anyone passes me, I can see their number. And it's very distinctive. We had special colored numbers, everything to identify with who you're racing. <clears throat> so... And there are some very fast guys. I think it might have been like the college national championships for London too. So there were teams from like Cambridge and Oxford and they were fast guys. Like, I mean, I sat on one guy running two th- uh, 535 pace for like 10 miles. So I'm thinking, I'm in the lead. I know that no one in my age group has passed me. So fast forward, I get to the finish line. I'm like, okay, I think I did it. And I mean, I oh, practically died to finish where I did. <clears throat> and I go back to my hotel and I look at the results and I'm like, what the hell? How did this guy beat me? It's impossible. I, I genuinely thought, oh my God, we got a close cutter. There's no way. Cause he didn't, I had such a lead on them at, at two, three miles that there was no way that you were running that slow and then going to close on me. It's not like I fell off a cliff. <clears throat> so, and I was also being slightly conservative thinking I was in the lead, which is another kick in the ass when I tell you what happened, because had I known that this dude is up the road, you can bet your ass. I didn't go to London to finish a marathon. I didn't want a finisher's medal. I wanted to either win or at least have a chance to win or die trying. And if I had known this guy's up the road, I'm going all out. So I'm convinced I'm talking to you and I'm like, "Uh, dude, uh, we need to call like Marathon Cheats, the website and figure out what the hell happened. There's no way this guy beat me. I don't know where he came from. So sure enough, I go, as I'm sitting in the airport looking on Strava, I look the guy up and sure enough, I can see, you know, on Strava exactly what course he ran. So he started with another start area. So I sent him a message on Strava nicely. I was like, hey man, I finished second. Um, just curious, like where, where, where did you start? I, you, why didn't you start in the designated area? And he's like, oh, I ran with the British National Championship start area. Like I guess they had their own race within the race. 
But, and I didn't go back at him with this and I, and I kind of regret it, but I didn't want to seem like a sour grapes type sore loser, but I wanted to say, oh, really was the British national championships was more important to you than the world championships. And here's, here's why I say that because this guy ran 229 low. I ran 229 high. He ran the first, he had a one minute lead on me. And you just said, I went out hot. This guy had a one minute lead on me at the like 5k mark. And I'm like, okay, right. this guy's running five minute miles. I don't know what his PR is, but I can't, I, I don't want to make assumptions, but let's just say this was a PR or whatever it was. No one in their right mind runs five minute miles when they're capable of running a 229 marathon. That's like a suicide mission. What I suspect and what I think he did was knowing now what I know is let me get off the front with a gap and hopefully maybe the person chasing won't know I'm up the road. You know, the old adage out of sight, out of mind. Like the cynic in me thinks this guy intentionally lined up over there, took it out really hard, knew he'd be competitive. I mean, dude, the next guy behind me might have been like six minutes back. So him and I were on another level. And it's just, it's kind of like one of these things, like even I'm embarrassed even talking about it now because I feel like like a, like a sore sport. But like, dude, at least give, race, let's race head up the way this was intended to be run. And if you beat me, good on you, but I don't think you can. And I think that if we race side by side, I'm beating you. And, but I, I'll, I, I, who do I tell? Like, you think the race organizers give a crap about some 50 year old dork who's like, oh, I didn't get a chance to race the guy, but I didn't. And I think, listen, I think I beat this guy 10 out of 10 times. He might feel differently. And I'd love to race him again. I'm, 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 I'm disappointed that someone would do that because we've both been around long enough to know there's like, that's it, at best it was sore sportsmanship. At worst, it was like blatant, uh, cheating, you know, to not want to be head up with me and let me know who you are. I want you to know who I am. I want you to know that I'm racing you. And I feel like, again, listen, I, I apologize for if I sound like a sore sport, but it's just, it was just not in the spirit of the race to like line up and race in the world championships and then start over with the British national championships when you know you're the only person in our age group that's doing that. And if you're trying to win the age group, be a man, stand on the start line right beside me and let's get after it and let's see who's the best because I don't feel like I got a chance to race this guy and like uh, the thought of going back. I mean, look, going to London to run the marathon isn't the most convenient thing in the world. I don't want to go over there two days before and, you know, typically you need an hour of uh, uh, one day per hour of time change to acclimate to like running in a, in a, in a, you know, more than one or two hour time zone away. So, you know, I was over there for a week, you know, I don't want to, you know, I would say I spent $10,000 between first class tickets, staying in a hotel, like all the crap that I did. So not be able to like, at least I can live with not winning. I can't live with not getting a chance to compete on a level playing field. So again, I'm sorry if I sound like a sore sport to some people, but man, if I'm racing you for a world championship, you can bet your ass I'm going to be standing front and center at the start line and not starting in some like cockamamie start section for some other bullshit reason. You're going to know who I am. So Does that anyway. fire you up to go back next year and have a rematch against this guy for the 50-54 I mean, world listen, marathon Dude, title. there's a part of me that's like, there's that alpha part of me that's like, dude, you know you got to go back. Why are you even trying to like pretend? But I don't want to. 
I'm like, come on, man. I don't want to go run the London Marathon again. London is a pain in the ass. The, the, the number pickup was like 50-minute taxi way away. It wasn't convenient. They had like stricter COVID protocols. It was, it was just a pain in the ass. Like, I don't want to do it, but I, I owe this guy a beating, and now I have to go back, and I don't, but I don't want to. I just, <laughs> I want to move on to the next thing. It, it, it was less about winning and more feeling like I didn't get a chance to like compete with him on a level playing field. Has having that hyper competitive attitude, like the one that you just described, I mean, you apologize for thinking you sound like a, a sore sport, but has that gotten you into trouble against competitors? Has it severed relationships, anything like that? Not that I know of, because when I finish a race, like I love everyone, even when I've like kind of outfoxed people like I'll tell you another story about um how running can be very mental in the uh, Myrtle Beach Marathon which is which I won in May um in 230 I, I had a goal of trying to win a marathon and not just like I wanted to win look I'm never gonna win London Boston New York right but I wanted to win a marathon that was at least you know not you know, the Rumpelstiltskin Marathon with 25 people in it. Like, you know, Myrtle Beach had a decent field. There was no prize money, so there were no pros. So I knew, okay, this is, if I do this, I, I can win. So I take it out and I'm off the front right away. I'm running like, I don't know, 530 pace. And a kid is like stomping out a fire behind me. I mean, just so loud, like a Bigfoot, but right on my heels. And he's listening to music, but he's young. And uh, he looks like kind of like a Prefontaine type. He's got like, he just, he, he had all the right stuff on, but he just, looked awkward, but, but he's running fast. So just the stomping behind me just pissed me off. And I turned around and I was like, dude, don't run right on my fucking heels. If you want to run behind me, cool. But like back off a little bit. It's just me and him. There's no one even close to us. So, and he has headphones on. So he only heard part of this of me snapping at him. So he jumps on the front and he starts legging it. He's running like 515, but I'm feeling good. I'm like, let's go, baby. I'll do this all day. I, if you want to take it out too hard, I bet that I can hang on longer than you can. So this poor guy, I feel so bad. From like mile three to seven, we're running through like Myrtle Beach, like in the town, and I'm just right behind him, right behind him. But I think that I run like, I, I, I pride myself on having good form and I don't sound like I'm trying to stomp out a fire behind someone. So, and he's listening to music. So I don't even know if he knows I'm behind him. I mean, I know he knows I'm behind him because a couple times he looked back, but he can't really hear me because he's also listening to music. I also noticed he's not taking any gels. He's grabbing some water here and there. But right away, after like 10 miles, I realized this kid hasn't had anything to eat. This, it's, he, he doesn't know what he's doing. This isn't, he's definitely going to explode. So <laughs> from mile seven to mile 17, 10 miles roughly, we're running into a vicious headwind along the ocean, just a straight shot up the beach. And he's running the whole way. And I can sense he's getting weaker and weaker. And almost to the point where I'm like, I'm going to go around him in a second because I don't want to, uh, he's not going to make it. And I don't want to destroy, I don't want to have a crap time. I want to win first, but I also don't want to run like 240 if I can run 230. So as soon as so he's, I stay on him, I stay on him. I'm taking my gels. I'm like following my plan, but I'm like, this guy's crazy. So as soon as we turn out of the wind, I just was like, later, dude. And I just like dusted him and just ran away. And, um, and, I, and I finished, I won the race. But as soon as the race was over, I, I, I went and found him and I, and I apologized. And I was like, listen, dude, I'm sorry I snapped at you. I was just like, you know, I just get competitive. And he's like, oh, 
And I said, when we were running into the wind, I, I would have shared the work with you. If he had gotten off the front, I would have been like, okay, let's switch on and off. I'm not a, I'm not a monster, right? I would have been like, all right, we're together. Let's go. You go, I'll go. And, but he, he was like, oh, after you snapped me, I didn't want to get off the front. And I was like, well, you'll figure out eventually, like, there's no friends in racing. You know, we can be friends now, but when it's race time, dude, it's the same as a fight. I'm not trying to make friends. And uh, I didn't do anything unethical or dirty to him. I was just like, had a kind of bully mentality, if anything, but it worked. And I won a marathon because he probably, he ran only one minute slower than me. It wasn't like he got blown off the back. If he had like, been more aggressive and been like, F you, dude, you don't tell me not to run behind you. Because if someone said that to me, I'd be like, what are you going to do about it? I'll run right behind you, dude. I'll, I'll step on your heels if I want to. What are you going to do? This is a race, dude. We're not in a tickling contest. Like, deal with it. But you know, my wife would say, that's because you're a hypocrite. <laughs> I'm like, call it what you want, but I'm like trying to win. I'm a competitor. It, it's, I, I love hearing you describe that because it reminds me of how people talk about Bill Rogers, the greatest, <laughs> I still yeah. think, the greatest American marathoner of all time. Yep. And nicest guy that you'll ever meet, be your best friend after the race, tell you all kinds of stories, ask you about your own running. But people who were competing against him said that he was the fiercest competitor that you could ever line up against. He would literally snarl at you in the yeah. middle of a race, like make like yeah, a man. snarling noise because he wanted to get away from you and he wanted to to beat you that bad. But once he crossed the finish line, the switch went off. And that's it. You have that type of mentality. I've been around the elite side of the sport long enough to know that the the very, very best, that's how they separate themselves. Uh, they 100%. have that type of mentality when they're in the arena, they almost become someone different. And all bets are off once the, you know, once the gun goes off. At, at within the, within the rules and guidelines, yes. As long as they're not breaking rules and like doing like bad stuff. Like I'm not, I'm not looking to like hurt anyone or, or do anything outside of like what I would consider to be like poor behavior, poor personal behavior. I don't, I wouldn't do anything that I would be embarrassed to talk about after the race because I don't want to win like that. I want to win the right way, but I want to win. And I want a chance to win and I want to compete. And I'll tell you, um, <laughs> thinking back of that there's, there's an expression that, or, or, or a phrase that goes through my head constantly when I'm in those situations, when I'm thinking I'm not being nice. And, and when I started working at the prison, man, it was an intimidating place as an 18 year old kid, even though I knew a lot of the people in there from the streets. Um, a Puerto Rican guy, big giant weightlifting guy. You know, I was got, walking down on the tier and you had to put your flashlight in and make sure they were in the cell, like typical stuff you'd see on a movie. And the door was solid steel with a window. And I'm looking in and the guy pops up from the floor and scares the shit out of me. Like they were, all, it was, it, it, it's like a prison is like a, like a high school full of bad, fresh kids, like bad kids. And you're a substitute teacher and they're just constantly clowning on you, you know, and it's like testing you like, what I just did to you is, is a goof. What are you going to do? Like write a report that says, um, you know what I mean? It's like they're constantly testing you. So how you handle yourself is how you're treated for the rest of your existence there as a guard or an inmate. So the guy jumps up and scares me. And I was like, all right, dude, you got me. I'm going to get you. So later in the night when I came by and he was laying in his bed, I sprayed him with a, um, like a squirt gun, like a squirt bottle just clowning him, you know, not, not soaked him, but like, he's like, oh, you son of a bitch. And he jumps up and he's yelling. I said, hey, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And he's like, 
motherfucker, I ain't nothing nice. And that expression has stayed with me for life. Even when I'm clowning around with my kids, I would say, guys, what's the, what, 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 you know what I'm going to tell you? I ain't nothing nice. And when I'm racing, that's how I feel. It's like, I ain't nothing nice. This is not nice guy time. This is like race time. Growing up, you boxed, you co-host a boxing podcast, The Fight with Teddy Atlas, which if you're into boxing and you haven't checked it out, definitely give it a listen. I have never boxed myself, but I love listening to your podcast. I love listening to Teddy Atlas just talk about training fighters. And I just like, I know there are a lot of parallels between the two sports and you've kind of loosely talked about that over the course of this conversation. But how do you take that mentality as a fighter with you into running and not just on race day, like you just described, but also, you know, in the 10 to 12 weeks that you're preparing for, for a race and how I'm going to set this up for you as well. I, I, I think back to that first marathon that I coached you for CIM 2019, you're in 228, first time under 230. You spent a good chunk of time leading up to that race training in philadelphia like you were almost in training camp because you were i with was Teddy in training Atlas camp as, yeah as he was preparing <laughs> was. someone for for a fight i mean and you were there like shadowing him but you're also putting in the work yourself and i mean i couldn't be there to hold the stopwatch and you know be that guy on the ground but you were like you know you were away from your family you're in training camp for like 10 to 12 weeks so i'd, I'd love to just kind of hear your reflections on the parallels between the two sports and more so like the approaches that the two sports share in common to me the mental component is exactly the same as a fight and um what you were referring to i spent eight straight weeks i didn't come home for eight weeks in philadelphia when i was living in la living with teddy atlas and um the great alex vosdick who was the former wbc undefeated world champion light heavyweight former bronze medalist and we were preparing for a fight against otter better bf who had the ibf light heavyweight championship and um, it was a pay-per-view main event on espn teddy and i were in the corner of Alex Vosdick, we were leading, we were ahead on the scorecards going into the 10th round. And in the 10th round, um, Alex got knocked out. Um, I mean, not, not knocked out cold, but he got stopped. He got hurt and, uh, they stopped it. And, uh, whew, even thinking back now, man, so emotional. He's so vested. I mean, I love that kid. We spent eight weeks training two, three times a day, but I would get up before everything started and do my miles every day. And it was almost like a, um, it was almost like a badge of honor for me to be like, yeah, we're doing it here. We're suffering. And then we'd go to the gym to box. I'd hit the weights. And even Teddy would say, you know, in interviews he was doing, he's like, oh, this guy referring to me. He's like, this guy's crazy. He's like, he's running in the morning. Then I look over every time we have a second of free time, he's lifting weights, he's doing pull-ups. And um, so that, that, that was where the Philly training camp, that, 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 that was the background there. And then with regards to fighting and, and running, to me, I prepared just like it's a fight. I think it was um, either Joe Lewis or Joe Frazier said, what you do, uh, if, if, you don't, if you're not out doing your road work in the dark, you're going to be found out under the bright lights. And I think about that when I'm racing. Like if I don't do this now, like the track workouts I was describing in the Nashville heat, 
that's where the race is won and lost. And, and, and I am super aware of that. And I try to convey that to people who care enough to ask or are interested in running and trying to be competitive is like what you do in the 10 to 12 weeks before the race will determine the race day, period, end of story. If you want to be competitive, you better get out there and suffer. And when I post sometimes workouts with uh, like a 20 mile run at like a 555 pace and people are like, oh my God, that's so fast. I'm like, dude, that's like, 25 seconds off of what I want to run for an additional six miles. And I finished that run and almost dropped dead. <laughs> like, I'm like, it's not impressive. I got a lot of work to do. I never feel, I never, ever feel, I feel proud of the work I've done, but I never feel like any runner, like I've done enough. And, um, you know, while I'm, like I said, I'm not going to get punched in the face. I don't want to embarrass myself and embarrass yourself in front of who? Myself. I just am accountable and dependable to myself. I know what I'm capable of. And to give less than 100% would be <laughs> triggering. <laughs> to shift gears a little bit, we talk after all of your races. We catch up in between about your training. We haven't done a 2021 debrief yet on your season. And to recap, you won Myrtle Beach Marathon in May. You finished second at the World Marathon Majors Championship in London, running 229 high, second fastest marathon you've, you've ever run. Talked about that. I know it's a sore spot. Came back just a few weeks later, ran 233 at New York, won the Masters race. And then two mm -hmm. weeks after that, go and run a 90-second personal best in the half marathon, 110 and change. Reflect with me upon your 2021 season. How do you feel about what you accomplished at 50 years old? The overriding theme is I can't believe that I didn't get the fair chance to compete for the world championship. I wanted to be the world champion. That's the, that's the takeaway. With that being said, I would have liked to have run a faster time at New York, but I, but I would say that the proudest athletic achievement of my life is winning the master's race at the New York City Marathon. It doesn't even, <clears throat> even now as I'm saying, it doesn't seem real. And, 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 and listen, I will be the first to point out that that is not the fastest time that's ever won the Masters race. I think, I think Abdi and Meb won it in like 212 or something. But to quote the great Des Linden, I just keep showing up. And you know what? I can't control who shows up on race day. Neither can you and anyone who's listening to this. You can't control other variables. All you can do is show up and show out. And I did that. And I was rewarded with a win of the master's title at New York City. Like, like that, that can bring tears to my eyes. And I know I, I completely understand if people listen, like, who gives a shit? Like, you won the over 40 division. Like, so what? That, it's just my name is beside guys that I admire and have massive respect for, Meb and Abdi, and I'm lucky enough to call them friends as well. But to have my name, I, I was talking to Abdi the, the night before the race. I said, Abdi, I'm going to win that Masters title tomorrow. And he's like, you got this, man. Go for it. And after the race, he was like, man, you did it. And I was like, I got him, Abdi. I got him. Me and you, two, mar two Masters champions. And he was just like, oh, I love it. He's just a, he's a super nice guy. Most runners are. Um, but the other thing is in New York that was 
friggin' awesome. And you and I have spoken about is um, being in that elite amateur field and qualifying to race in that thing. I mean, they roll out the red carpet. Credit to the New York Roadrunners, man. Awesome job. They they bust us out with the pros. I mean, same exact treatment as the pros. We had an indoor facility to warm up. There were massage therapists. I had had a muscle spasm in my calf a few days before that was causing me massive anxiety because it just like my calf wasn't working like two days before the marathon. But the um, they did some ART on it race morning. I jogged around the track and uh, it was just incredible. Then they bust us over to the start line. It's just, it was, it was an awesome experience. And then to, the crazy thing is they weren't updating the times very quickly. So New York Roadrunners, come on, man, get your tech in order. It took like 24 hours to find out that I won the, I was just psyched to win my age group. And then someone was like, you won the masters too. I was like, come on. Like literally, like I could have cried. I was like, man, I did it. It's not the fastest time, but it's faster than anyone else did it that year. So, um, yeah, in hindsight, I think that if there was a negative, it would have been the way London played out. Just, you know, granted it was out of my control. Um, like I said, if I knew the guy was up the road, man, I would have liked to have had the chance to empty the tank, but I was convinced that I was winning. Um, and then, and then to win the Masters in New York and then have a PR in the half. Cause I, dude, I knew I could run faster for a half marathon. I just had never put it all together. And that day it was just, if there was any negative, it would just be that the course was super hard. That's another thing I kept saying to the kid who I was running with. Every time we came to a hill, I'm like, for Christ's sakes, dude, another hill? This is like the hardest half marathon in the country. He's like, yeah, this course is no joke. And I was like, man, this kid, I can't rattle him. He, he had won it like multiple times, so he knew everything that was coming. But in, in sorry, that was long-winded, but that was that's my takeaways from the uh, 2021 season. In, in, in summary, it was like a, a dream season in the sense that People noticed and paid attention and like showered me with praise that made me feel proud and humble beyond words. And it's, it's been an incredible experience. And all I want to stress to people like, dude, this is, this is available to everyone. You can have this. This is a good feeling. Don't, don't, don't limit yourself. Don't accept what you presume to be an inevitability of aging. Yeah, it's a little bit harder and things get sore. And the funny thing is when people are like, how are you feeling? I'm like, like shit, everything hurts. I think I got a separated shoulder that I refuse to acknowledge or get addressed. Every morning I wake up and I'm like, oh, I can't lift my shoulder up. Literally feels like it's out of the socket. But I'm like, oh, the thought of getting surgery and not being able to run for a few days while my shoulder heals is like, it's intimidating. If you couldn't race anymore, or races just didn't exist. They were wiped from the face of the planet. Would mm -hmm. you still run and train as hard as you do? Yes. Yes, I'd run and train as hard as I do, and I would find some other outlet. Like um, I got a friend called Devin Levesque. He's in the process of, uh, I think he starts next week or the week after. He's going to go try to climb the uh, seven highest mountains on each continent. I think he's trying to do it in a record time. He's a freak, this kid, Devin Levesque. Um, he, he, I went to see the Jake Paul Tyron Woodley fight with my friend Dustin Poirier, Jesse Itzler, and this kid, Devin, and um, Devin Levesque, Q-U-E at the end. And um, he's like a social media fitness guy, like super fit, super handsome. And he was like, yeah, I'm going. I'm going to do uh, Russia this month. I'm going to do Antarctica this month. And he's like, come with me. And I was literally like, I got to do this. I think I have to do this now. I think I have to go climb a mountain in Russia or Antarctica. I don't want to go to Everest. I don't like being cold. I, I, I don't, if you see any of those images of the parade of people going up Mount Everest, I feel like they've destroyed the reputation of that mountain by like commercializing it. 
But the thought of going to Antarctica or Russia to climb the highest mountains there is like, all right, that scares the shit out of me. Let's do this. So I, 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 I'm going to try to do some of that kind of uh, outside of the box stuff uh, in the next year. And uh, if there wasn't racing, I'd find something else to do. I like, I, I just need an outlet. Uh, maybe I'll right run now. An it's out- just that outlet. Yeah, maybe at some point I'll run an ultra or something. But yeah, I just I want to challenge myself physically. Now I know the changes that I've made to your training over the past two years, but I'd love to get just your reflective perspective on how your training has changed in the two two plus years that we've worked together now for what four marathons, mm-hmm. PR, everything we talked about this year, half marathon best as well. Cause you were a great runner when we started working together. You'd run 233, as you just described, you had been getting faster and faster and, and you were stuck there. But I'd love just to get your thoughts on the changes that that we made to you know your approach to training, also your approach to racing that have led to some of these big breakthroughs, first in your late 40s and now into your 50s. And I have no reason to believe that it's going to stop anytime soon. Um, you know, since I've worked with you, I would say as we get to like this periodization of preparation for a race, like 12 weeks out, I would say the structure of the workouts prior to working with you, I just was aimlessly, I had no structure. I just run when I felt good. I'd run fast. When I didn't feel good, I wouldn't run fast. I'd run slow. And, and on the weekends, I'd do a long run. And now with the training program, obviously it's like professional style running program that we're doing, you know, 80 to 90, 100 mile weeks. Um, the structure and the accountability and having like a teammate in you that I know. That's the other thing is I feel like a sense of responsibility. I'm like, I know this fucking Mario's watching. I got to do this. Like I'm a representation of his, like I'm one of his clients. We've got to deliver the goods. <laughs> so, and, and even if that's like in my head, that's just my own, that's what I tell myself. And I'm like, yo, we're, we're a team. He's giving me the workouts. I'm executing the plan. It's like a boxer and a trainer. It's like everything has to be clicking for it to be good. And uh, yeah, we keep improving and it works. I would say that since I've moved to Nashville, one of the big things I've added in, that's made a significant, I don't know that it's made a difference. I mean, it's hard to say it hasn't helped is um, I've added in much more structured weightlifting a few days a week. I was getting really skinny for a while in LA. My wife's like, dude, if you get to the point where you weigh less than me, we have a problem. Uh, so I, I, when I moved to Nashville, I put in like a whole professional like rogue fitness gym, like squat rack, free weights, kettlebells. I mean, I've got everything down there and um, I use it. And when I finished the um, Myrtle Beach Marathon, the reporter there, I posted an interview on um, Instagram, but the reporter came over and, you know, you finished with the half marathon finishers. So like the stragglers in the half marathon, which was a little bit anticlimactic when they do that. It's kind of a bummer. Like I come running in and like people are like, wow, that guy's running fast compared to everyone else. Like, yeah, I'm, like that's the marathon winner, but it's like no one was there like, here comes the winner. So it was a little bit in that regard, anticlimactic. But then the guy came over, the reporter, and he's like, hey, did you just win the marathon? I was like, yeah. And he's like, oh, they told me some buff guy won that marathon. And before he could say another word, I said, that's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. I'm a buff guy. I don't feel like a buff. I weigh 165 pounds. I've never been described as buff, but I'll take it. But I do realize that when I'm running and I see pictures of me running next to other runners of my abilities that I look like a freak of nature with in terms of like my muscularity relative to other runners. But 
it's something that I take pride in is like, you know, I, I, I can run like a runner, but I don't have to look like a runner. <laughs> Do you think coming to running later in life, and you had a background in team sports before you started endurance sports. You played hockey. I think you played football too mm-hmm. growing up. And then I you played got both into, sports in college. Yeah. Got into to boxing, but then running triathlon eventually so you're doing some stuff on you know on the bike i mean you have some history in in strength training do you think that's just helped you like meaning becoming just a a more well-rounded athlete or being a more well-rounded athlete to better handle this training that you're doing now at 50 years old because i know i mean speaking for myself i'm turning 40 in a few months i'm 10 years behind you i've also been running for about 25 (laughs) years at this point i've got a shitload of miles on my body i'm trying to think ahead 10 years from now i'm like there's no freaking way if i even wanted to that i think i could run 80 to 100 mile weeks like week in and week out and train at the level that that ken's training right now but i think you're able to do it because you're just a, a solid all around athlete and you don't have as many lifetime miles on your legs uh yeah that could be it i also didn't get that competitive running out of my system as a kid so to me i'm like reliving my childhood through running to a certain extent is like i never had that feeling of being a good runner as a kid like maybe i would have been good if i got into it early i don't think so but as other people like you you're a real runner and now you're like oh i'm gonna start slowing down you've already told yourself that you're gonna give up like you've already thrown in the towel you're like i can't do it when i'm 50 i say your fastest races are ahead of you if it's important enough to you so when i think about it like that i'm like yeah too bad that these guys are giving up so easily like i i know from experience that if you're just willing to get out there and do the work you can get get it done like I didn't have I don't know because I don't have a background in running I don't have these limitations on myself of like am I supposed to be able to do this all I know is that hard work works and it and it keeps working and I just keep doing it and I just keep showing up how important is sleep to you as critical gotten older (laughs) and, and been training a lot harder I don't play around with sleep if someone interrupts my sleep it's not good. I like, I, I don't, that, as I've gotten older, if there's one thing that I've noticed is, has, has aged is my eyesight. I wear reading glasses now that I never had to wear before until I was like in my mid to late forties. Now I can't go out without them. I mean, I have them on as we're talking. Um, and, uh, sleep. I don't, I just, I just can't get like a good solid eight hours of sleep with low resting heart, high HRV. You know, I wear a whoop uh, band and I wear an aura ring when I sleep and I compare them and it sometimes it's just like a source of frustration because I'm like what the hell I got like a 23 sleep score on my whoop strap like come on man what the hell I'm trying to do everything I can to get sleep so that's sleep I mean sleep is the number one performance enhancer it's the most important thing we can you can do you got to give your body a chance to recover so that's where I don't compromise like sleep is important to me is that relatively recent or has sleep always been important to you you know recently meaning like in the last like five or ten years as i've gotten into endurance sports i realized that it's like directly correlated to your performance and it's you know it's source of it's a source source subject with my wife because she'll be like let's go out and have fun and i'm like number one (laughs) if it's a saturday i gotta be home to watch the fights number two i've got to get up and exercise in the morning like 9 30 is plenty late for me Last question to round this one out, and it comes back to a theme that has popped up multiple times over the course of this conversation, but how important are the stories that we tell ourselves? 
It's everything. The way you and I both witness, uh, 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 look at the media. The media can take a, a world event and Fox and CNN will have two completely different narratives around that story. And that's not to say who's right and who's wrong. It's to point out that you and I can witness an incident in the street, a fist fight, and you can have, we, we, we're going to have two completely different descriptions of what happened based on our experience and our perception and even our emotions at the time. So everything that happens to you is your interpretation. And, 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 and I have these philosophic, philosophical discussions with my children all the time. And when they're scared of something, I'm like, what I like, my daughter is scared to death of everything. She's scared of Santa. She's scared of the elf on the shelf. And I tried to, dis- I tried to rationalize it. I'm like, think about what are you scared of? Like, what do you think that this is going, what do you think is going to happen? You've created your, your imagination is running wild in your mind. This elf on the shelf is going to come out and burn the house down and kill the dog. And, but really, He's been here for 10 years and has never done anything except bring you presents. So I said, what is happening that you're ta- convincing yourself that there's a threat here? And she'll like think of it. She's like, I don't know, but I'm scared of him. And I'm like, all right, cool. Trying to, ra- trying to like rationalize with a 10-year-old brain, I have to remind myself like, all right, just needs a little more development. But anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying like the way the stories we tell ourselves is every, is, it, it dictates the course of our life. I think that's a great place to wrap this up. So tell yourself good stories. <laughs> I think that's the biggest, probably the biggest takeaway of, of this conversation, but always fun to sit down and talk to you, whether we've got a microphone on or not. I think the listeners will take a lot away from this one. And it was great to have you back on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you for having me, brother. I love you. All right. Thank you so much for listening in to the Morning Shakeout podcast. A big thank you to both Tracksmith and Gooder for sponsoring this episode of the show. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running apparel brand born from a desire to celebrate both the history and evolving culture of running. Go to tracksmith.com slash Mario to check out some of my favorite apparel picks and use the code Mario, that's M-A-R-I-O, all caps, at checkout to get free shipping on your order while also helping support LA Saves Track. Gooder sunglasses are just the best. Not only do they look good, but they don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. If you'd like to support me in the podcast, treat yourself to a pair or two or maybe three of Gooders and head over to gooder.com slash Mario and get 15% off your entire order. That's G-O-O-D-R dot com slash M-A-R-I-O to get 15% off your purchase couple more things before we wrap up i'd like to give a shout out as always to my longtime producer john summerford who makes every episode of the podcast sound clear and amazing also thank you to jeffrey stern for running the am shakeout social media accounts and chris douglas for handling sponsorship sales last thing if you are digging this podcast i think you will love my newsletter it's also called the morning shakeout and you can subscribe to it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe Every Tuesday morning, you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to. It's a quick read, 5-10 minute stops, but it will give you plenty to think about throughout the rest of the week. Again, you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.